Um, so this morning we're going to have a professor talking about Menger's uh, disequilibrium principle of uh, price formation. And in the afternoon it will be uh, me speaking on the uh, coordination of social interaction. So, good morning, Professor. Thank you, Sandeep. Uh, good morning, everybody. I'm uh, going to be very short about the uh, announced topic because I want to go back to our friend Ben Bernanke. But let me just say that Menger dismissed equilibrium analysis in economics. He uh, was very emphatic about that, that the market does not create an equilibrium price. In fact, it's an un equilibrium situation because if two parties value the same good in exactly the same way, there'll be no exchange. Exchange will emerge if one party puts a higher value on this and the other party puts a lower value. Because in that case, the uh, party putting a lower value will be very happy to pass it on to the other party who is putting a higher value. Now that's just common sense and this applies in every exchange, every conceivable exchange. So we call it the disequilibrium principle of Menger. And you see this disposes of all the big constructions of classical and neoclassical economics. You have to start from scratch. And we already talked about this a little bit. Yesterday, the way to build this new edifice, this new economic theory, is to start with the concept of marketability. I think we should all learn the German word for it, Absatzfähigkeit. Uh, at least one German word we should have. This is so central to the approach of Menger. And then from this idea of marketability follows that the market produces two prices, the lower bid price and the higher ask price. And this applies to not just commodity markets where goods and also services are exchanged, but also, and that is the important thing for us in this course, it also applies to the bond Price. So the market produces a lower bid price for the bond and a higher asked price. And out of this, we develop the uh, theory of interest, 
origin of interest in the spirit, very much in the spirit of Karl Menger, you see. And uh, we are pioneers in this, I might add, because there are lots of theories on the rate of interest. There are, as you probably know from history, there, the wars were fought over that the Reformation in Germany started uh, and also in other countries and especially the name of uh, John Calvin is associated with the idea that he uh, denounced the ban uh, both secular and canonical ban, both secular law and canonical law in all over Christian Europe uh, ruled out uh, what they called usury. But any interest charged on a loan was considered usury. And, uh, and Calvin one of the central figures of Reformation rebelled against this, denounced this, and this started a movement which actually took centuries until Rome, the Catholic Church, gave in, and the Holy See, that's the Pope's uh, see, instructed confessors that they should not disturb uh, the, uh, the people who confess that they committed the sin of either demanding interest or paying interest. Both were uh, sins. Uh, and, and as I say, this was a prolonged process. And then, of course, uh, what I refer to wars, there were wars. I, I think in most of the cases, the, these religious wars, which uh, uh, started from the Reformation, and especially Germany was devastated, but also other countries. And uh, uh, I, I would say, I may be biased, but uh, the religious issue was obviously there. I, we cannot deny that. But below the surface, there was also this issue that the can canon laws and the secular laws banning interest were against nature, against human nature. And there was a rebellion against this because it set a limit to improving the well-being of the large masses, people. People lived in poverty and a large part of that was that the capital markets were completely uh, under control 
in the sense that they could not develop their full strength, bringing forth all the goods and exchanging goods and services which would raise the standard of living for the common people, for the poor people. So I, I for one cannot help but say that these religious wars arising out of the uh, Reformation, sure they had a religious connotation, less obvious but it's just as important or even more important, underneath the surface there was this struggle to get rid of the fetters which uh, the canon laws and secular laws imposed on exchange of goods, exchange of services, and exchange of capital, because that is what is involved. Under the heading of interest, what you have is the capital markets, they can blossom only if there is freedom of exchange. Uh, capital and capital will not be exchanged if interest is zero. Uh, you just have to recognize the uh, human nature and the fact that interest is an organic part of it. So what I'm saying here is that Menger's principle, the disequilibrium principle applies to the exchange of goods, exchange of services, that's now wages and the, the implication of the wage rates, and the third is capital markets, which means lending and borrowing and paying interest on loans. And what happens in this case is that the lower bid price for bonds and the higher past price for bonds, um, we have to interpret in terms of the rate of interest. Because at that early stage, there were simply no bond markets. There were the open markets which could freely quote the bond price. There was no such thing. And there was no such thing until sometime very late, uh, late uh, 18th century or middle 18th centuries when bond markets <coughs> appeared. It took that long. So we, uh, to be historically faithful, we have to talk about not so much the bond price because there's no such thing but we should talk about the rate of interest. Now, what should be realized by every one of us is that the rate of interest and the bond price are mirror images of one another, which means that the mirror image switches around the high and the low. So as the bond price moving down, the rate of interest is moving up and vice versa. And this is a mathematical relationship. And uh, this is 
uncontroversial. Every economist would accept that. This is just the, what, one of the very few universal laws which all economists can agree to. And as a consequence of this, uh, very often uh, in my lectures I refer to this as the seesaw. You know, the uh, children pay, uh, play. There's a log, and there is a fulcrum in the middle, and uh, one child sits at one end, the other at the other, and this is they are moving up and down, but always in the opposite direction. And the lowest level here corresponds to the highest level there, and vice versa. So that's the same relationship uh, for the uh, rate of interest on the one hand and the bond price on the other. So rather than talking about the lowest bond price and the highest bond price, we are going to talk about the floor of the rate of interest corresponding to the top bond price and uh, the uh, ceiling of the range within which the rate of interest is free to move. And that is what we have to do, study these two separately, the floor and the ceiling for the rate of interest, because they are determined by different forces and uh, we have a lot, to, a lot of information coming out of this study. So again, that also follows from the disequilibrium principle of Karl Menger. All right, so uh, this uh, gives us a program and we are going to follow up, but it's Sunday and I promised you an entertaining lecture, so we'll change pace, we leave that topic now and uh, start talking about something which I, I find myself rather entertaining and rather am amusing, and that's Ben Bernanke. <laughs> I wrote down tail risk, in quotation mark, because this is a quotation from Ben Bernanke, who last year, I think it was in July, he had a testimonial before a congressional committee in Washington, D.C. And usually this is a ceremony he uh, presents his report on the state of economy and then uh, talks about uh, the problems and the tasks which the Federal Reserve is facing and how 
the Federal Reserve is meeting the challenge. Now, why this particular testimonial of Bernanke last year in July was uh, very unusual is because he introduced a new concept, a phrase, and that's the phrase, tail risk. And it was unusual and out of character for two reasons. Um, one reason was that tail risk as he explained what it was, and I'm going to repeat that in a minute. But this was a topic which was under taboo. It was something which no economist, no politician should ever mention. So what is that tail risk? <laughs> You would never guess, because the uh, meaning of these words do not suggest this. But, and I'm quoting Bernanke verbatim. These are exactly his words. He says, tail risk is the really, really, he said it twice, really, really bad outcomes in economics. Now, he would not specify this any further, but of course, <laughs> we are not subject to that taboo, and we can actually spell it out, what the really, really bad outcomes are, or could be. Well, there are several of them, but you could simplify by naming two. One really, really bad outcome is hyperinflation. When the price of goods and services starts increasing without limit. And this, of course, means the gradual depreciation of the value of money. The purchasing power of money is going to be zero ultimately. So this is commonly called hyperinflation, but there are other terms too. What other terms can you uh, recall? Crack up boom. Hmm? Crack up boom. Yeah, that's right. Crack up boom. Uh, that goes back to Mises. Crack up boom. And there's also a German uh, expression, uh, flight into uh, uh, real goods. What would be the German expression for that? Flucht? Flucht in Sachwerte? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> so this is one type of uh, bad, really, really bad outcome, hyperinflation, or you can choose your own name, and of course, People in Europe especially, but not in North America, people in Europe are well familiar, if not through their own experience, because most of people uh, are young and they don't have a memory, but certainly their parents and grandparents do. And, and it's a living memory because they, uh, the parents and grandparents have told their children and grandchildren 
about these uh, great sufferings after World War I and World War II, but it goes back because there was hyperinflation in France in, uh, at the, uh, during the French Revolution, at the time of the currency assignat and mandat. Uh, so in, in European history, this really, really bad outcome is, is very familiar. But not so in North America, even though they also had it. At the time of the American Revolution, there was a currency which was known, it was a paper currency, it was a fiat currency. It was called the Continental Dollar. And that was issued by individual states. It was not centrally issued. But it also ended up in a hyperinflation, losing all its value. And as a uh, result, the English language, at least in North America, uh, preserved that by, uh, there is a phrase, which is still being used in North America, not worth a continental. And that means not worth a continental dollar, which means it is worth nothing. Because that's exactly what happened, the continental dollar. Uh, lost all its value. And we should know that the American Constitution was framed by those uh, founding fathers in full awareness of the danger of hyperinflation. So the American Constitution constructed a monetary system which was a sound monetary system in the sense that it defined money in terms of silver first and gold after. But the order doesn't really matter. It's just that they did not, uh, they did not uh, choose a gold coin. They chose a silver coin which was inherited from the Spanish uh, there was a Spanish uh, piece, silver piece, it was called the piece of eight, uh, and, uh, and they named that, Constitution names that coin, that was the definition of the dollar, and uh, they actually fix the weight and the fineness of that silver coin. They did not bother, yes? I was going to say, the, the Constitution says that so many grains of fine silver, it doesn't actually mean the Spanish coin per se, because I think they were moving on to an American coin at that point. But it does say, was it 292, I don't remember the number of grains of fine silver. But is it not true that uh, the coin they refer to is that particular coin? Probably, but the Constitution itself doesn't name any particular coin. It, it, yeah, it may be that it does name. Yeah, probably yeah. you are right. But it talks about a definite coin, naming it or not, which corresponds exactly to that piece. But yeah. th that's not an important point. The, uh, uh, the
the important point is that it's a silver coin which the Constitution defines as the dollar. And I also find it very interesting, which to my mind proves the wisdom of the Founding Fathers, is that they did not establish by metallism. By metallism was established by Hamilton, uh, Secretary of the Treasury, who uh, submitted to Congress the, um, the first Coinage Act. So, and that was a mistake. It was actually a very bad mistake because it was uh, the government legislating uh, prices that so much that, that actually one ounce of gold is equal to 15 uh, ounces of silver. <coughs> and the mint was obliged to make <coughs> the exchange. Whether you took gold to the mint, you could demand silver at that ratio or vice versa. And this was a mistake. That was again the crime of 1873. Yes. Um, yes. It was a de facto uh, metallism. That's right. And were only in, in, I think, 1900, and uh, they made the laws, but in 1873, they fixed another ratio. Yes. So there were uh, uh, grave consequences, and uh, it is very unfortunate because the Constitution was a very clear-headed document. It did not make that mistake. It's subsequent governments uh, uh, which made the mistake of introducing a fixed ratio. So uh, that is the uh, uh, one important thing which I would like to call uh, your attention to. Now, Ben Bernanke uh, is, as I say, talking about tail risk. So one large part was hyperinflation. The other large part, which is possibly even larger, more fearful, and, uh, fearsome, and more damaging from the point of you people usually hyperinflation is a quick uh, like a storm which comes and goes and then reconstruction starts so the damage is limited but the other danger and this is the danger of deflation just the opposite of inflation is a drawn out process it could take it could run decades or even longer, a period of falling prices and falling interest rates and growing uh, unemployment, bankruptcies, and a lot of economic suffering. And here we can talk about lost generations. If you think of, uh, for instance, uh, Japan, ever since the 1990s, Japan has been experiencing deflation, 
to this day, and a lot of uh, young Japanese people who had dreams and wanted to work and wanted to create and so on. The opportunity was completely lost to them because of that deflation. And uh, as I say, hyperinflation does not create lost generation because it's just too quick for that. It's, I mean, people do suffer and there's a lot of pain and all that, economic pain, but it's before long it's all over. Not so with deflation. So the other half of the loaf, the really, really bad outcomes, is deflation. Now, Bernanke talked about these tail risks as if they were nature-given, just like an earthquake. Human beings had no way of control preventing an earthquake or a tsunami or even a flood or think of any other natural disaster. These things are beyond control. That was the, the message, Bernanke's message. Beyond human control. What the Fed could do is could soften the blow, blow but could not prevent it. This was the message to Congress by Bernanke. But this is completely false because we should look at tail risk as an artificial risk created precisely by the conceited usurpers and hijackers of the Constitution. Because Bernanke had to swear to uphold and defend the Constitution. But the first thing he does, and any, uh, any chairman before him of the Federalist Board did that, they trample on the Constitution. The Constitution could not be more clear that it created a monetary system based on silver and gold. 